Hello and welcome to the podcast of Vineyard Church here in Maryville, Tennessee. We post our Sunday messages here each week, as well as our conversations episodes, which include interviews, special announcements, and in-depth teaching. You can visit vineyardchurch.us to learn more about us or to access the audio archive. You can also subscribe to this podcast on Spotify, Apple, or Google Podcasts. And now, here's the episode. Okay, it is the season of Advent, and we are doing a series called The Soul Felt It's Worth. And we're focusing on the very abstract idea of a soul. We have this very basic image to help us think through this. We are um, three parts, body, spirit, and soul. Can we put that slide up that helps us sort of picture this together. There we go. Our body, this is, uh, I know this is painfully simple for a very complicated idea, um, but our body is our outer person. It's our physical selves. We, of course, understand that most easily. Our, their spirit, or in the scriptures, sometimes this refers to our mind or our heart. Our spirit is our inner person. This is our non-physical selves. And then deep below that is our soul. Uh, We often sort of blend it together with our spirit. It's a different thing. Scripture makes a a clear distinction between the two. At At a deeper place, at a place that lives largely, I think, beneath our conscious awareness is our soul. And even though it's not always in the front of our minds, in fact, it's usually out of our minds, the fact is it is the foundation upon which our body and and spirits rest. And so the way that we move out into the world, the way that we live our lives, the choices we make, are largely dictated by the state of our soul. So that's the big idea. When we're talking about a soul, we're talking about something deeper than body or or even spirit. Now, uh, it's the second week of Advent. The traditional themes of Advent are hope, peace, joy, and love. And so throughout this Christmas season, we're asking, how is your soul? And specifically, how is your soul as it pertains to hope, peace, joy, and love? Uh, Today, peace. And uh, as we did a couple of weeks ago, I'm going to cheat. I'm going to outsource some of the word, some of the word study here to the Bible Project. So we have uh, one last video to show you guys. This is from the Bible Project. It's a it's a word explainer video. It's about three and a half minutes long to give us a foundation for what it is we're actually talking about when we talk about peace. So check out one last video. The word peace is common in most languages. People can talk about peace treaties or times of peace. It means the absence of war. And in the Bible, the word peace can refer to the absence of conflict, but it also points to the presence of something better in its place. In the Old Testament, the Hebrew word for peace is shalom. And in the New Testament, the Greek word is erene. The most basic meaning of shalom is complete or whole. The word can refer to a stone that has a perfect whole shape with no cracks. It can also refer to a completed stone wall that has no gaps and no missing bricks. Shalom refers to something that's complex with lots of pieces that's in a state of completeness, wholeness. It's like Job who says his tents are in a state of shalom because he counted his flock and no animals are missing. This is why shalom can refer to a person's well-being. Like when David visited his brothers on the battlefield, he asked about their shalom. The core idea is that life is complex, full of moving parts and relationships and situations. And when any of these is out of alignment or missing, your shalom breaks down. Life is no longer whole. It needs to be restored. 
In fact, that's the basic meaning of shalom when you use it as a verb. To bring shalom literally means to make complete or restore. So Solomon brings shalom to the unfinished temple when he completes it. Or if your animal accidentally damages your neighbor's field, you shalom them by giving them a complete repayment for their loss. You take what's missing and you restore it to wholeness. The same goes for human relationships. In the book of Proverbs, to reconcile and heal a broken relationship is to bring shalom. And when rival kingdoms make shalom in the Bible, it doesn't just mean they stop fighting, it also means they start working together for each other's benefit. This state of shalom is what Israel's kings were supposed to cultivate and it rarely happened. So the prophet Isaiah, he looked forward to a future king, a prince of shalom, and his reign would bring shalom with no end. A time when God would make a covenant of shalom with his people and make right all wrongs and heal all that's been broken. This is why Jesus' birth in the New Testament was announced as the arrival of Irene. Remember, that's the Greek word for peace. Jesus came to offer his peace to others, like when he said to his followers, my peace I give to you all. The apostles claimed that Jesus made peace between messed up humans and God when he died and rose from the dead. The idea is that he restored to wholeness the broken relationship between humans and their creator. This is why the Apostle Paul can say Jesus himself is our Irene. He was the whole complete human that I am made to be but have failed to be. And now he gives me his life as a gift. And this means that Jesus' followers are now called to create peace. Paul instructed local churches to keep their unity through the bond of peace, which requires humility and patience and bearing with others in love. Becoming people of peace means participating in the life of Jesus, who reconciled all things in heaven on earth, restoring peace through his death and resurrection. So peace takes a lot of work because it's not just the absence of conflict. True peace requires taking what's broken and restoring it to wholeness, whether it's in our lives, our relationships, or in our world. And that's the rich biblical concept of peace. All right. Once again, thank God for the Bible Project. There's a lot there, right? And we want to make sure when we talk about peace that we're, we're talking about what the Bible means when it talks about peace. Um, and let me juxtapose that now against something that I, I, I sort of experience happening um, in our culture. Probably you do too. There's this, this funny thing that's been sort of, I think, building momentum um, in the past few years. There's a, different, there's a different kind of emphasis on peace in our context, especially um, the idea of, of inner peace. There's a, um, there's a growing sort of therapeutic worldview that, that makes finding just some measure, some modicum of peace, uh, the ultimate good in this world, the ultimate goal of life. Now, uh, when I say a therapeutic worldview, I don't want you to misunderstand me when I'm saying that. Um, I'm a big fan of therapy, all right? Um, I'm not talking about therapy. I'm talking about a therapeutic worldview and it's one that it largely denies the existence of a soul. And it basically says if we can sort out our minds, if we can sort out our thought life, our, our inner life, then we can find the peace that we're all looking for. And because people are desperate for that, that's getting a lot of traction. But the fact is, when you think about this, um, that's like getting a filling without uh, drilling out the cavity first. Okay? It, doesn't, it doesn't go deep enough, and it doesn't ultimately fix it, even though it may be helpful. So what happens then, as sort of the extreme of this worldview is that a god or an, an idol is made out of this notion of protecting ourselves along the way in this world, protecting ourselves from any kind of harmful ideas, 
protecting ourselves from, from any thought or word that might offend us, that might ruffle our feathers in any way. Have you guys experienced this sort of in the water a little bit? Like we, we feel attacked by anything that even pushes against our sore spots, whatever they might be. But I just want to point out the obvious about that. Even if by some inconceivable miracle, you were able to actually control the way that everybody around you thinks and acts and talks and you're able to so manicure your timelines and your news feeds in such a way that you are never confronted with anything that offends you in any way or anything that you disagree with or makes you uncomfortable to any degree. If you were able to do that, which by the way is completely ludicrous and altogether impossible, even then, it, it still wouldn't bring you peace because it doesn't address the soul. And yet, that mentality, again, that worldview, why, why is, even though it's based on such, an, such uh, an implausible premise, why is it still gaining traction in our context? And it's really, it's really simple. It's because we're just so desperate for some measure of peace. Just some, me- and Christians too. We're, we're desperate. We just, please, I can't, I, maybe, uh, look, I don't have to be happy. Just a little bit of peace, please. And so this is very much uh, in the water. This reminds me of something happened a little while ago. We have a little, we have a little dog named Tyson, and he's three years old. And when he was a little puppy, um, the kids wanted to teach him how to do tricks and stuff, you know. So you get the treats and you do the whole thing. And what they found out is it's a pretty sharp little dog, and we can train him pretty quickly. And just in the matter of like a few minutes, they had successfully trained our dog to sit on command. And they're like, this is awesome. And they'd like blocked out the afternoon for this. So what are we going to do now? And they're like, well, let's just teach him another one. Okay, let's teach him to sit. Let's teach him to lay down. So he lay down and get a treat and do that. And did that for a while. And that worked really well. And they're like, well, let's keep going. And we taught him how to shake and to shake both hands and to, and to sit pretty and to spin around. And, and they did like half a dozen tricks in the space of about three hours. Sharp dog. And it was working. I came home. They had all this to show me. This is great. But here's what happened. The next morning, our dog, he still knew all those tricks. But the commands for those tricks just got all jumbled up in his tiny dog brain. And he didn't know which was which. So here's what happened the next day. You pull a treat out, and he would just start desperately cycling through all the tricks that he knew. I sit, I lay down, I spin around, I shake your hands, both hands, sit pretty, whatever you want. I'll do whatever you want. Just give me a treat. And he, poor thing, he looked desperate and pathetic. It took us a while to like untrain all of that because like, please, he would do anything. And I think in a large degree, that's what we have in our context. We have people jumping through every hoop, doing every trick that we can imagine because we just, please give me the treat. I just need some peace. A meditation app, great. 20 bucks a month, I don't care. Pastor tells me to pray, fine, I'm in. Read the Bible, I'll give it a shot. Small group, church, worship, whatever, anything, any trick, any lever I need to pull. And the thing is, I think Christmas has kind of gotten on that list. It's like, okay, I'm so, I just need some peace. And, and they talk about that, I think, in the Christmas story. And that's one of the themes. So, so we treat Christmas as, again, another level that, lever that perhaps we can pull and maybe find some peace. Uh, This comes from a very, very familiar passage. I'll read it to you now, Luke chapter 2. You know the story, but don't space out. That night there were shepherds staying in the fields nearby, guarding their flocks of sheep. Suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared among them, and the radiance of the Lord's glory surrounded them. They were terrified, but the angel reassured them, Don't be afraid, he said. 
I bring you good news that will bring great joy to all people. The Savior, yes, the Messiah, the Lord, has been born today in Bethlehem, the city of David. And you will recognize him by this sign. You will find a baby wrapped snugly in strips of cloth, lying in a manger. Suddenly, the angel was joined by a vast host of others, the armies of heaven, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heavens and peace on earth to those with whom God is pleased. I know that rings a bell. I know this is familiar. It's a really important text. Uh, But it's so familiar, even to non-Christians, it's really familiar. So much so that I think we might need to unlearn some stuff from this text. Let me read again what uh, the angels say and what what they sing about in verse 14. Glory to God in highest heaven and peace on earth to those with whom God is pleased. And you might hear that and go, well, that isn't, that's actually not, that's not, that's not it. That doesn't sound right. That's not what I'm used to hearing. That's not, that's not what Linus said in, in Charlie Brown Christmas. Like, what we're used to here is peace on earth, goodwill toward men. That's what I'm used to hearing. This isn't right. No, actually, this could be jarring for you. Peace on earth, goodwill toward men isn't right. It's the wrong translation. If you read any newer translation, they say it like this because we learned and we were not translating it accurately along the way. When we've been saying peace on earth, goodwill toward men, we've actually been, I think, painting a little bit of an incorrect picture because peace on earth, just this, this idea of like, to me, it implies like this, this blanket peace that just, you know, wafted up and it just settles over all of the earth, and it covers everything, and it covers everyone, and, and goodwill toward men is so, so broad, it sounds like, like this sweet life upgrade for all of humanity. And what happens then, I think, as a result, is people hear the story, peace on earth, goodwill toward men, and they quickly conclude, well, that didn't happen. Like, I don't know if the angels were wrong or confused because they said this Jesus guy was going to bring peace on earth and goodwill toward men, and I'm sure he did some great stuff, but he surely didn't do that because there's not peace on earth, and there's quite the shortage of goodwill toward men. It's not what it says. So if that's the response, I want to encourage you. Let's read what it actually says. Peace on earth to those with whom God is pleased. And God is pleased with us, listen, because of the blood of his son, Jesus Christ, the sacrifice that we just celebrated at communion. What, what they're actually saying, what the angels were actually singing about is, hey, there's this baby, his name's Jesus, because of him. There are some individuals who will experience real peace on this earth, even in the midst of this broken, messed up place that we live in. The promise here is not for total shalom for the entire world. That's not going to happen until God renews all things. The promise instead is that for those who find life with Jesus, there is an opportunity in this for real peace, for lasting peace, even in this busted, jacked up, imperfect, broken world. There's this possibility, this opportunity for this settled awareness that in spite of all the problems that swirl around us and all the realities that we can't escape, we're okay. We're okay. It's, it's a contentment. It's a contentment that, that supersedes any and all circumstances. 
that we're talking about what the word peace means. Contentment's a tricky word too. I want to spend some time with it because I think the, our concept and our context of, of contentment gets us pretty close to what we're talking about with the word peace here. Um, there are two senses of the word contentment. Think about this and stay with me. You've probably experienced both. I hear them both from time to time. One sense of the word contentment is basically, um, it's, like, it's like an acceptance of the status quo. Where you're just like, okay, fine. I can be content with this. All right, I can, I can manage to be content with that. It's sort of something that you would say after you just made a huge compromise. And you go, okay, I can be content if that's what it has to be. That's one sense of the word. And there's another sense of the word where the feeling, the idea of contentment is this like profound sense of satisfaction deep within, like this soul level peace. It's not, it's not settling. It's being settled. Being settled in the best possible way. You guys with me on the difference? Not enough of you nodded, so I'll tell a story. Um, well, Sharon and I were dating, uh, this is, of course, many years ago, uh, but we've been together for quite a while. We weren't yet engaged, but we were getting pretty close, and I was very much in love. And we had this date, and I had this whole thing planned because I had something to tell her, okay? And it was a big deal to me to tell her this. And it's not, I love you, I'd already said I love you. To me, this was a way bigger deal than saying I love you. I looked at her, and this was, such, this was such a huge moment for me. Like, my heart was racing. I was fighting back tears. And I said, Sharon, I'm content with you. I'm content. And what I meant was, I have this deep soul-level satisfaction. It is well with my soul in the deepest way because of you. Like, I'm, I walked away from there walking 10 feet above the ground. I'm a man in love. That's what I meant. But what she heard was, I'm willing to settle for you. What I meant was, I am deeply settled. There is a peace deep within my soul. You're the one, man. Like, this, was, this is a bigger deal than like F saying, I was practically asking her to marry me. But what she heard was, all right, fine, you'll do. That's what she heard. Based on the understanding of that word. So it's important that we know what we mean when we say contentment. And I'll be careful about this because she is in the room. But my definition is the biblical one. (laughs) So what I mean, what I meant to her when I said I'm content is what the Bible means. What Paul means when he says he's content. All right. So let's read about that. Another familiar text, Philippians 4. I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. And this is a big deal for him to say this, by the way. He's sitting in a prison when he writes it. I've learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. And that last one's familiar, right? I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. You got that on a bookmark or a coffee mug somewhere, I bet. You've heard that one. That's that's one of those Sunday school classics. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. But 
I know he knows, but like that is often misused, right? Like it's, a, it's taken out of context. What he's talking about is the capacity to be content no matter what comes to him. It does not mean that I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength and therefore I will never lose. I will always win. I will, and whatever I put my hand to, it's going to work out. Why? Because God's on my side. Okay? That's, a, that's misusing that text. All right? It doesn't mean you're always going to win. In fact, I'll tell you a quick story. Uh, not too long ago, I, again, not to brag, but I am the assistant coach of a middle school girls basketball team. Now, as we were, uh, the girls were coming out of the locker room, there's this thing that they have set up just outside. As you run out of the locker room, there's this plaque that they picked. They all voted on what it says. And they decided it would say, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength, Philippians 4.13. And they were fired up before the game. And I was out there with them. I was like, all right, girls, let's go. And I watched every single girl on the team jump and smack. Even the tiny one that could barely reach it. She jumped up and smacked it. And they all smacked it. I can do all things through Christ. I can do all things through Christ. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. And then they went out and got blasted. Guys, they got donkey stomped. They lost by 30. But you're like, wait, they all, they all said I could do all things. I can all, doesn't that mean we always win? It's not, it's not what it means. It's, it's not what it means. Y'all remember Evander Holyfield? Remember him? He, he had, he always had Philippians 4.13 on something when he went out to box. You know, he'd have it on his trunks. He'd have it on his robe. Why do they wear robes? That's weird. Anyway, he'd have it on his robe, Philippians 4.13. What that did not mean, and I'm assuming Evander understood this, what that did not mean was that he couldn't lose. What that meant is, no matter how badly he might lose, he's okay. He's going to be, even if that psycho tries to bite his ear off twice. Can you believe that happened? Guys, kids, look it up. Mike Tyson tried to bite Evander Holyfield's ear off twice. In the, okay, moving on. No matter what happens, he's okay. That's what it means. And he goes, I figured out how to be content. It's not, no matter what, I'm, because there's this deeper level, I'm okay. I want to show you guys a, a famous painting that, until recently, I have not liked this painting uh, at all. But now, now I, sort of, I sort of love it. This one. Um, this is from the 6th century. This is a priceless masterpiece. Uh, 1,500 years, think about this, how remarkable this is. 1,500 years after this icon was created, people all across the world, across cultures, across religions, everybody, they take one look at that and go, oh yeah, that's Jesus, got it. That's a big deal. Other icons for centuries now have been patterned after this one. Ever since, for 1,500 years, we've been patterning our icons, our understanding of who, what Jesus was, what he was like, what he looked like, is based on this. Why does this image make such an impact? What does it tell us that's such a big deal? Because if I could be honest, like what it, what it says to me, at least at first glance, is that Jesus was kind of a bummer. That's, that's what I think. Like, hey, man, you want to you wanna go hang out with that guy? Like, no. No, I don't. I'm good. I don't want to hang out with that guy. That guy looks like he needs a sandwich and a hug. <laughs> that guy? This is entitled Christ Pentocrator, which means Christ 
the omnipotent Lord of the universe. That guy? That guy looks like he needs my help, not the other way around. Like, what am, what am I missing here? Okay, first off, we have to, stay with me, we have to drop our modern ideas, by the way, about smiling for the camera. That throws us off. Okay, this is a modern reality. If you go back just a couple of generations, if you've gone back and looked at maybe parent, pictures of your great-grandparents or your great-great-grandparents, if you notice, they're always just, eh. You know, they're just never smiling for the camera like we do now. And we judge them for it, don't we? We're like, ugh, what's their problem? I guess life was hard back then. It's like they're probably happier than you, actually. And we make fun of them for it. But you know what? If they saw your Instagram, they'd think you were a psychopath. We're like, what is their problem, okay? Portraits weren't always about proving how happy we could look, okay? That's shifted over time. So we got to drop that. What people have found captivating about this icon for centuries is that this isn't the look of a conquering hero who wins at everything all the time. He actually does look like he needs a hug and a sandwich. He looks like he's been through some stuff and taken some really serious losses along the way. And somehow, somehow, despite all of that, there's this deep, settled peace about him. That's what it's capturing. I think it's in the eyes. I've heard there the window to the soul. A contentment, an ease, a rest that's clearly not about circumstances. That's what makes him Christ Pentocrator, Christ the omnipotent, the Lord of the universe. And Christians throughout the centuries have really wrestled to try to get our heads around this idea. Like what, what, what are we even really talking about right now? This deep, settled peace, this contentment, soul-level stuff? We've struggled to find the words for it. Um, the Desert Fathers use this word, Hezekiah. In fact, on our, on our podcast, we do interviews along the way on our conversation. Just a few weeks ago, we had a podcast with Dr. Mark Fields talking about the Desert Fathers. This would be like second, third, fourth centuries. And he said they really fixated on this idea of Hezekiah, which is a, a word for peace, but it carries this idea of like a deep inner level quietude, this settled, this contentment. Fast forward a little bit, uh, look at the Jesuits. Also on our podcast, actually, we had Phil Strout, the former national director of Vineyard USA. That's also in the last few weeks. And then he came and talked to us about another point in history. He talked about the Jesuits and talked about St. Ignatius of Loyola. And he was a Spaniard. And his word for this was indifferencia or something like that. I don't know. I only speak the one language. But indifferencia is where we get the word indifference, but it doesn't mean what we mean when we say indifference. When we say indifference, we mean, ah, who cares? Apathy, that's what we mean. But for them, it's this, it's not, I don't care. It's, I am deeply and profoundly affected by all the things that happen around me. And I'm deeply invested. I care about the people around me, the state of the world around me. But deep within my soul, there's a part that is unaffected by the circumstances that are swirling around me. That's indifferencia. In the medieval times, they used a Greek word for it, apathia. Where we get the word apathy, it doesn't mean apathy. Again, it's the same idea, deep, settled awareness. What we're talking about is the peace of Christ that passes all understanding. 
And the look on Jesus' face is reflecting his soul, not his body. Do you see that? This is not telling us that he was emotionally checked out. He was not emotionally checked out. He was healthy. I'm convinced is another message. But I'm convinced that he laughed harder and wept harder than anyone ever. But while his body and his spirit were riding out the, t- the tumultuous waves that are inevitable to life on this earth, the waters of his soul were like glass. Settled. Content. At rest. At peace. And here's the deal. Talking about me. I personally... I can be all of those things. The whole settles, content, at rest, peace. I can be all of those things easily. As long as everything is all good in my life. <laughs> can you relate to that? I can be all those things as long as I have, you know, this and 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 that and that and this and I'm out of fingers, but this and this and that and this and that. And a couple of these. As long as I have all of those things then I'm good. Hear me on this. Moving into actual biblical peace, peace that's as deep as the soul, is about that list of this and this and that and this and this, that list becoming shorter and shorter and shorter and shorter until the list is just Jesus. Just, just Jesus. And that's it. About a month ago, Sharon and I were at a pastor's retreat. And the band played this awesome old vineyard tune, Draw Me Close. And uh, the chorus says, you're all I want. You're all I've ever needed. You're all I want. Help me know you're near. I hope you remember that one because we're going to sing it in a bit. Anyway, it was beautiful. I love that song. And then uh, a few hours after that, Sharon and I were sitting by the lake talking, sort of processing what God was speaking to us on the retreat. And she sort of was confessing. She said, you know, for the first time in a long time, I actually had had a hard time singing the words, you're all I want. Because if I'm really honest, like, I don't, I don't know that he's all that I want. I want other things too. And for, I, I struggled singing those words. I don't think my response was great because she was confessing, but I was impressed because I said, I've, I barely remember singing that song and not feeling stuck on those words. It's cool that that's been her baseline. <laughs> my baseline has been, there's something untrue when I sing this, these words. When I sing the word, and I still sing them, but when I sing them, it's aspirational I'm singing, you're all I want. God, let that be true. Let that, it's not true right now. Make it more true. I need it to be true. And then the next line, you're all I've ever needed. I can sing that at the top of my lungs. That's the truth that I need my soul to get in touch with, that he really is all I needed. And therefore, again, you're all I want. It's hard to hold on to that idea. The, the video that we watched, remember it talked about completeness, remember? Like, what is, I want to ask you, what's your idea of that completeness? Remember, they kept showing images of wall and all the pieces and the blocks of the wall fitting together and being whole. What's your idea of completeness where the wall is filled and you're okay? 
And my idea, I got this whole list, man. I got this whole list. I got physical health and emotional health and relational health and financial health. Really all the healths. And all the stuff. You know, it's like this big, long list. But hear me. For the very few, for the absolutely free people in this world, it's, it's just Jesus. And they're... And they're at peace. Waters of their soul like glass. And you know what else? They're also kind of invincible. Because they have the one thing they want and nothing can take it from them. Now look, as I, as I say this, you, you might hear this and think, man, this all kinds of, sounds kind of far-fetched, right? Like, that, like, how does anybody, I just want you to know, I feel that way too. I think, man, this is so, this feels so beautiful and out of reach. It feels that way to me too. I think, who actually does this, you know? Like, who lives there, what we're talking about? That kind of peace. Not me. Not me. Not, not today, not yesterday, and not tomorrow. To be honest, I, too honest maybe, I don't, I'm, not sure I can even, I'm not sure I can even picture that in me. That type of peace, that type of peace. I don't, I'm not sure I can even see it happening. That can be really discouraging. But here's the deal. If I look, if I look back, if I look back five years, if I look back 10 years, I look back 20 years, what I realize is I am so much closer to this reality than I was. So much closer to this reality than I believed I could be 10 or 20 years ago. And to be clear, please don't misunderstand me. I'm not close. We're talking, I'm not, I'm not close. And I don't know if I'll ever get close in my whole life. But I am miles and miles ahead of where we, where I used to be. I don't think, I can't prove it, I guess, but I don't think we can get like zapped with this kind of peace. I don't think we can get some like magical download of it that surpasses all understanding and then we just live like that from now on. But guys, and this is it, and this is it with every sermon, I know. But as we walk with Jesus, hour by hour and day by day and week by week and month by month and year by year and decade by decade, as we walk with Jesus, we start to believe this stuff. And it gets worked in. And it gets worked down, down even into your soul. I'll tell you a quick story about that, but that's to wrap up. So let me invite you to stand as you're able. The story I want to tell about that before we sing this song together is a compare and contrast for me. Sort of an opportunity I got to compare this in a way that I wasn't anticipating. It's comparing and contrasting where I was at personally during our most recent move, you know, back in August when we came to 1225 William Blunt Drive, versus how I was doing about 12 years before that when we moved to 713 William Blunt Drive. I had um, friends reach out to me during that that move all those years ago and uh, because they love me and because they're good people, and they say, man, how are you doing? Like, this this is a lot. 
was a lot to try to oversee and a lot to try to manage, and they would say, are you okay? And if I was in the mood and I trusted them enough, I would tell them the truth. And I would say, I'm not okay. I'm not okay. And I didn't quite use this language, but the reality was I was so overwhelmed with anxiety. And I was working like 100 hours a week, but not because that was needed, but because I was so fearful I had to do something. Like I just was, I was not okay. What's interesting, a few months ago, several months ago now, as things are really ramping up here, some of those same friends called me and said, Aaron, how you doing? This is a lot. It's like a bigger project than last time. It's like millions of dollars. Are you like, are you okay? And I remember telling them, like, guys, <laughs> honestly, I'm as surprised as anybody, but I'm fine. Actually, I'm, I'm great. And here's what I said every time. I was like, I don't know how this happened, but somewhere along the way, I actually started believing this stuff. That it really is in control. That he really does have me. That whether my, I get it through my dumb brain in that moment or not, he really is all I want and all I need. I just, this all had sort of hit an interesting little pinnacle. I, I think I may have already told you this, but whatever. Um, we had come to terms to purchase this building. We'd agreed on everything and we had, we had the agreement in place, but we hadn't finished all the paperwork. And Shortly after that, I got a phone call from the representative and they said, hey man, I'm sorry, the deal fell through. They got a better offer, they're gonna take it. And I said, but we had an agreement. And he says, I know, but they're just, they're gonna take the better offer, I'm sorry. And I said, I, will you please call them back and tell them I think they should do what they agreed to. And he was like, and I'll just, I'll try. I was like, okay. I hang up the phone. I was at home. I walked back in the bedroom and Sharon looks at me and she goes, what's up? And I said, the deal fell through. And she goes, are you okay? And I said, yeah. Actually, I was shocked. I was shocked. If you'd have asked me how would I react, I would probably crumble to the ground. I'm fine. My heart rate didn't go up a bit. I had this deep somewhere, this settled peace. Like it's, he really does. This is his family. This is his church, not mine. We need a building. It's okay. Guys, this Hezekiah, this apathia, this indifferencia, this settled contentment deep in our souls, I am not. I am not there. But I am so much further down that road than I used to be. And so are many of you. Many of you have been around for the whole ride and I've watched it. I've seen it in you. So many of you have deeper, greater peace than I've ever seen in you before because you've been walking with Jesus. So let's sing this song together. Let's pray that a sense of deep clarity will settle on our spirits as we sing this, that he really is all that we want and all that we need. And if this for you feels completely out of reach, like there's no way you could actually experience biblical peace, I just want to plead with you. Walk with Jesus, man. It's coming. It's coming. It's slow coming, but it's coming.